0: So, uh, wow, I love that song and love those words. Just absolutely tremendous. Um, We are in Isaiah, perhaps an unusual passage for you uh, when we think of Christmas, but we have been in a series, and our series has been Christ uh, Before Christmas, Jesus predicted uh, in the Old Testament, and so we continue this morning and we'll finish this series next week. Several years ago, Wendy and I had a foreign exchange student uh, who lived with us. His name was Fadi. Fadi was from Palestine. He was a a young uh, 16-year-old, inexperienced in many things, one of which was uh, shrubs, landscaping wasn't his thing. I had a crepe myrtle tree and it looked something like this. It wasn't that tall but it was white. It looked like that and I asked Fatty to trim it. He did uh, and it's never been the same. As a matter of fact, that's what it looks like today. Uh, That is its stump. Uh, That's uh, been years in the making and every single year Uh, We have uh, little uh, stems that grow out of the stump and try to do something. And you may say, well, Jerry, why are you sharing that with us? Why are you telling us uh, the story? Um, One is, I hope Fatty's watching on Facebook. Um, And then the other is, this is exactly what happened to Israel uh, in Chapter Eleven, there is a picture of Israel, and the picture is ugly. Israel is pictured like a um, like a, a a fallen tree, uh, a shrub that has been cut back until there is no more. It is seven hundred years ago in israel 's history. And um, King David had reigned and had done a remarkable job. He uh, expanded Israel's borders. He moved the capital city to Jerusalem. He was used uh, remarkably by God in the history of Israel. And so uh, he died and Solomon became king and under Solomon's reign is the most peace Israel ever in its history has enjoyed. Even until now, Solomon reigned and Israel rested until Solomon sinned by doubting God and implementing his own plan, which was to marry the princess of Egypt. And when he did, he became a polytheist. He began to worship other gods than the one true God. And when that happened, Israel began to slide into sin until we find them now, and they are in a desperate place. It is into this scene that God speaks to Isaiah. And what he has to say to him is honest but hopeful. And from God's words to Isaiah and his words to us, I hope to answer three basic questions about Jesus this morning. Number one, where did Jesus come from? Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot. From the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. If you've come to this candlelight Christmas service, expected to hear the story of a celebrity baby born, this is not the story that we have to tell. Uh, There was not nobility uh, surrounding the birth of Jesus. The message we declare, and the Jesus we preach is, is no baby Archie born to Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. That's not what happened here. There were no paparazzi, no motorcades. There was no spectacle made by the people uh, that night when Jesus was born. Jesus was a shoot from a stump. That's how Isaiah describes him. A shoot is a twig. Twigs grow on the stumps of trees that have fallen down or have been cut down. The great nation Israel lay fallen in the wilderness like a tree whose life is no more, trampled on by surrounding countries and nations But what those kings didn't know is that they were stomping on a shoot that would become the king of the universe, who would be born a tiny twig from a felled tree. Jesus was a twig. I don't say this to demean him. I wince even to say the words... Let alone put them up on the screen for you, but it's what Isaiah says. It's who Isaiah calls him. Isaiah can't even, in this passage, connect him to the greatest king who ever lived in Israel, ever, David. He calls him the son of Jesse, who is David's father. David's royal line is in trouble. And you have to know that if CNN had been on the scene the the night Jesus was born, they would never have thought to go to Bethlehem. Bethlehem, even in tiny Israel, which is simply a dot on the map, Bethlehem was not a, a, a place that any of us would go to. It is only traveled to today because of what happened there. You would have not even found them in Jerusalem. You would find them in Rome. You see, there's a man who's ruling. His name is Caesar Augustus. He's the first Roman emperor, and he's pretty amazing. Caesar Augustus reformed the entire tax code it was Caesar Augustus, who's 30 years into his reign when Jesus comes on the scene, who built so many things that every emperor following him has Augustus in their title. So the news would have gone to Rome. You would find CNN or Fox or ABC on one of those new trade routes that made uh, trade wonderful in Caesar's day. They would have been found along those brand new arches, the first triple arches ever to be built in the history of the world augustus built that's where they would have been or the new aqueduct that that got water to places it had never gone before the news would have been covering that they never ever would have found themselves in bethlehem that wasn't newsworthy you and i look at it today and we consider it to be newsworthy but in that day it was not While all of that is going on over in Israel, a small twig was growing out of a fallen tree. Unseen, unheard, unnoticed. Jesus was born to a virgin girl named Mary who was engaged to a carpenter named Joseph. Nothing to write home about. No one, I mean no one, would have thought that the birth of that baby boy would be the reason the world hits pause in December still today. The whole world hits the pause button. Everything changes today because of a twig growing out of a stump. You're 16, or maybe you're 60, and it's December 22nd, and you're wondering, why are you here? Why does this matter? Well, that leads us to our second question that Isaiah answers Who was Jesus? We know where he came from, no fanfare. So then who was he if we hit pause in, in December? God isn't concerned about a rags-to-riches story. Yes, those are great stories, but bringing Jesus into the poverty of the world wasn't so God could roll out the perfect Hallmark movie It's who Jesus is that turns a twig into a tree, a root into a fruit, a sapling into a cypress. Look at verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge uh, and the fear of the Lord. Jesus was the Son of God who came to do the will of God. It is who he is, not where he's from. It is who he is uh, that, that causes us in December to hit pause and reflect and think. Jesus knew as a 10-year-old boy that he wasn't just any other kid. I don't know if you've ever lost your kid, but if you ever have, panic ensues. If for a moment you don't know where your son or your daughter is, panic ensues, and Jesus was, as a 10-year-old boy, up in Jerusalem for the annual pilgrimage with mom, dad, and siblings at that time, most likely he had, extended family would make the trek. So Jesus is there, and as he is there, uh, they leave, and he gets caught up with some pretty well educated, remarkable people. And he listens in, and as a 10-year-old boy, engages them in conversation, and as he does, loses sense of where he is and of mom and dad, and they're on their way, and their crowds along the roads now exit in Jerusalem, and all of a sudden they look around. You know, this is a home alone moment. They look around, and they discover somebody's missing. And when they do, they go back to Jerusalem, just like you would, to find him. And when they do, they say, what in the world? They're, they're like any other parents. Where were you? Luke two forty nine? and he said to them, why were you looking for me? That is not a good question when you're 10 years old. And your parents have lost you, Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Or uh, one translation renders it, I must be about my father's business. How could a 10-year-old know such things? The spirit of the Lord rested on him. Jesus was both wise and understanding, as it says here. Jesus is now grown. He's not at home anymore he's got disciples who follow him from place to place he teaches he heals this is early in his ministry he is trekking from the south from jerusalem up to the north uh, and has to go through samaria and when he does he he sits down at a well because he was a real guy with real pain and real issues like you and me and he got thirsty and as he's sitting there, the disciples go into town to find something to eat because they're all hungry. And when they go into town to do that, Jesus sits at the well and this woman shows up. She is, uh, is the town whore. She is a woman that comes to the well midday so nobody will know who she is she goes to draw water and Jesus does a preposterous thing uh, he is a Jew talking to a Samaritan they were they didn't mix he is a man talking to a woman that never happened and he's a rabbi talking to a peasant these three things never ever happened but Jesus looks at her and asks her for water and and she is surprised, and she asks him who he thinks he is talking to her not in a an arrogant way, but in a surprised way he 's here she 's here in her mind, and uh, they engage in a conversation, and by the time it 's over, the disciples are, are are still back in in uh, in uh, town trying to find food it took them a while which meant it wasn't a chick-fil-a so they're at mcdonald's and they're trying to find food and they can't find any food i mean it takes a while and while all this is going on uh jesus tells the woman that who says she has no husband that she's had five and the one she has isn't hers and as soon as she realized that he knows her junk. He knows her story. She believes. It's the point of contact of her sin and his sinlessness. She's ready to worship and to evangelize, and she runs back into the town and says, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could could he be the Messiah? Well, the disciples come back. They're blown away that Jesus is talking to a woman like this in a Samaritan and, and she's a woman and they ask him about it. And in John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, the disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I ask you, how could Jesus confront the social norms of his day? Where did he learn this? Well, Isaiah said, here the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of counsel and might. Jesus could look into somebody and see through them. Would it last? Would it go beyond a 10-year-old prodigy? Would it go beyond a a budding evangelist who, who finds a woman who's blown it? Would it last? Jesus, will you endure? Will you stand the test over time? Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. He's with his disciples now, and he said to them, "Sit here while I go over there and pray." And take him with with him—Peter and the two sons of Zebedee—that will be James and John. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. How could Jesus be so resolved to do the right thing, though it hurts so badly? Well, Isaiah said, The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord shall rest upon him. Jesus feared God. We would use the word respected more than he feared his own death. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. That word delight is interesting. It's from the root word to smell. The fear of the Lord will smell good to him. That's what that means. The fear of the Lord will smell good to Jesus. So a couple years ago, around this time, our, our kitchen flooded. It was one of those sl- uh, slow things between the, the dishwasher and the, uh, the, the sink. And it, we discovered it when all of our tile cracked one day. most of it. And so I literally, I know you're going to find this hilariously absurd, went online to make sure there wasn't some earthquake I didn't know about. And when I discovered that wasn't the case, I said, well, honey, something cracked the tile. And so went down underneath the kitchen and discovered just water everywhere. It black mold. I mean, it was just bad. So we had to gut the whole kitchen. We started that the day after Thanksgiving. That'll bless your heart. Well, we got it done, and we so enjoy it. And uh, one of the new features of our kitchen is we actually now have a vented stove. Like, it has a real vent that blows outside, you know, the ones that pass fire code. And so, so that's, that's the reality. And where that vent is located with that, where the vent is located is right where you drive up. That is awesome. Because my wife can cook. And so when I pull into my driveway, when I come into my driveway, all i got to do is crack the window and I can tell you what's for dinner. The smell is coming out of the vent and it's smelling so good. Uh, I delight in our new vented stove. Because of what comes from it, Jesus, in a greater way than that, delighted in the fear of God. It smelled good to him. The fear of the Lord smelled good to him. Jesus was the Son of God who came to do the will of God. So that leads then to the third question what was the will of God? What did Jesus do? Look at this. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. If Jesus does not judge with his eyes and his ears... This makes him like no other judge who's ever lived. Why? Because every other judge has to watch and listen and then make a decision. That's what judges do. They sit and they listen and they decide. Unless you're Judge Judy. She listens a little and decides a lot. Right? But most judges sit And listen and decide. So if Jesus doesn't judge with his eyes, and he doesn't judge with his ears, then how does he judge? It says here he judges with righteousness. The only way Jesus can judge with righteousness is because he himself is perfectly righteous. He knew no sin. Isaiah says that later in 52-53. There was no guile, he says, found in his mouth. He did not sin in word. He did not sin in deed. He did not sin in thought. He was the perfect, sinless, righteous judge. You see, don't know if you've thought about it, but God requires blameless perfection. Nothing short of perfection in order to get into heaven. It is not just a almost, it has to be perfect. Uh, Only perfection. You say, why? Let's go back to my kitchen for a moment. When that water began to leak and it was trapped between the insulation and the floor, And trapped in there with no space to get out, mold grew. I I didn't go plant mold. It just grew. Sin is like that. It is like a mold. It It needs no fertilization by us in order for it to grow. Sin is like bacteria. It grows without trying. It's just the nature of sin to grow and get worse. Sin is like a virus. It spreads without even trying. It's just the nature of sin to grow and get worse. That's how sin works. So if you want an eternity without lying and cheating and gossip and hurtful words and murder and misunderstanding, anger, alcoholism, drug addiction, child abuse, pornography, there must be a righteous judge who will take care of that. If he doesn't, as soon as one human being enters heaven with sin, heaven's done for. That's why sin is so dangerous. So when Jesus went to the cross, he died as the only perfect man who ever lived, and he died in your place for your sins on the cross. He died for you But notice how he judges. He will strike the earth. That's a pretty forceful word. With the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. All right, so so Jesus is going to come and he's going to win with a war of words. That's what Isaiah says. He's going to win with words. If Jesus is going to come, and he's coming as a mighty king, but as a mighty king, he will come and he will win with words. What will those words be? So I began to think on that. Isaiah, you're saying there's going to be a little twig. A twig is going to grow out of a root, out of a stump. It's going to grow up to be a tree. It is going to be a sapling that becomes a cypress. It is going to be a root that bears fruit. And when we know this twig is full grown, the way we will know will be the words of his mouth. What will those words be? I went to Jesus' most awful moment, awful for him, glorious for us, and there are seven phrases that came out of his mouth on the cross. He won with these, and he longs to win you with them. What are they? For the Roman soldiers, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. as they are nailing him to a cross, spikes just above his ankles and spikes between his wrist and his elbow, crown of thorns, it's time for Jesus to preach. He's in full-blown combat mode, and his words will win. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's not alone there on the cross. He looks in between, he hangs between two criminals deserving of punishment these two criminals hang there alongside Jesus one mocks him the other calls the other one out for mocking him and says no no this this man is innocent of anything that he's being accused of and Jesus looks over at that common criminal and when he does says to him today you will be with who? me, in paradise. right. so so far he's reached two groups of people, neither of whom you and I would walk across the street to share the gospel with. We we wouldn't give them the time of day. The soldiers nailing him to the cross, the criminal beside him, and then he looks down from the cross, and he has a conversation with John or with his mother to let her know that john his friend the only disciple there will take care of her in his death and he says woman to his mother behold your son not himself john do you see what he's doing do you see what he's doing on the cross he's he's crying out to God on behalf of Roman soldiers he's reaching out to the woman beside him uh, or to the to the criminal beside him and he's looking down to the woman his mother in front of him on the cross Jesus is looking out for others he's winning with words he's winning with words he's winning people with his words And then he looks up. My God, my God, he says, why have you forsaken me? His father looked away because sin is so heinous he will not look on it. And Jesus is bearing the sin of the world on himself. You see, you may have walked in here today and you say, Jerry, I'm not sure I, I believe that Jesus is who he says he was and he did what he said he did. But I'll tell you a problem that every single person in the room grapples with, and that's sin. We all struggle with it. We've all done it. And he took yours on the cross. Oh you and I should never take our sin so lightly as it demanded the death of God's only son. And just in case you think oh Jesus was superhuman uh uh-uh, uh 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 no Jesus was a man next statement I thirst I'm thirsty It's a Mediterranean hot day. The sun is beating down. Jesus is pushing himself up on that little pedestal at the foot of the cross just to get some oxygen in. His mouth is dry. I'm thirsty. He says he was one of us. The next words are for Satan himself. It is what, class? It is what? It is finished. What is finished? Not his death. He's still alive. No, the war. Jesus is winning right here. He, the righteous judge, the only sinless man to ever walk on the planet. Jesus Christ is dying for the sins of the people. He died for the sins of Andy and Jeff and Kelly and Robbie and Weston. He died for your sins and on the cross with his words he declared it is finished the work is done this monumental moment in history is over he died for you that's what he did wow Once and for all, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus took care of the problem of sin. Aren't you glad? It is finished. Back to his dad. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. And he died. How? How, Jesus? The fear of God smelled good to him. The fear of God smelled good to him. He finished. His work done. Resurrection, that wasn't Jesus' work. Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. His work was done. He crossed the line. He finished. He did it. So what does this mean for you and me? It means nothing unless, what does Isaiah say? Look at this. Don't miss this. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Back up. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Only the poor and meek receive forgiveness. Only the poor and the meek. To be poor here has nothing to do with money. To be meek has nothing to do with weakness. Please hear me. To be poor and to be meek is to admit that you can't save yourself. To be poor and to be meek is to come to the cross, to come to Jesus and say, as the old hymn writer said, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. that That's how you come to him. You, you, your accomplishments, you, you check them at the foot of the cross. Your Your good deeds you've done, your money you've given, your uh, time you've spent serving, um, whatever it is, your intellectual capacity, your uh, community, uh, no, 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 none of that, none of that. You come poor and meek. To be poor and meek is to admit that you can't save yourself, that your sins do separate you from God, and that unless the righteous judge steps in on your behalf, you will die in your sins and go to hell. That's what it means to be poor and meek. A couple weeks ago, I had a meeting over in Montreat, and it's the first time I've ever been to to Billy Graham's office or to where his Montreat office was. And as I was leaving, David Bruce, who was Billy Graham's longtime assistant, said to me, "Would you like to see his office?" yes, yeah. And so we walked through the door and into this very humble space, the low ceiling, paneled walls. And I just stood there for a moment and I thought of this great man of God that God used in remarkable ways. Our praise team is going to come and we're going to sing a song that he made famous. It is an old, old hymn that outlines what Isaiah says here. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me Over the years of Graham's Crusades, it is estimated that over three million people walked down an aisle while they sang that old hymn. Just as I am without one plea, meaning there's nothing I bring but that Thy blood was shed for me and that Thou bidst me come to Thee. O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot to Thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, will welcome, pardon, cleanse, believe, because thy promise I believe. O oh, Lamb of God, I come. Would you bow your heads for just a moment? This Christmas, more than anything at grace. We want you, if you've never come to Christ, to come to Him. You say, all right, I hear you. How? how, how do I walk out of darkness into light? And old oh, Jerry, you you talk about the woman at the well. I, I've sinned so much. Is my sin not too much? Is it? Not overboard? Will He really receive me? I would say to you this morning, He will. If He could save a sinner like me at the age of 15, then He could save a sinner like you at whatever age you are. So nobody's looking around, and if you say this morning, Jerry, I'd like to pray and trust Jesus as my Savior this very day. Would you just slip up your hand where you are? God working in and through you. And you hear him calling you this morning. Nobody looking around. I'm not going to single you out. You say, today I'm giving my life to Christ. trust in Him as my Savior say secondly if you're in this room and you know Him and I'm going to use this metaphor that Isaiah used but the fear of the Lord no longer smells good to you have chosen other smells of the world, other desires in which you delight. If that's you, during this song, our staff will be down here to pray with you. We have other folks who will be here to pray with you. We have a room to your right. My left, where we'd love to pray with you. And if you say, This morning, I'm coming home, I'm coming back, I've wandered too long. Don't leave like you can. Let's stand. Let's sing. You obey God this morning. Amen. For you, and and Jesus, we are grateful that you finished the work. You, a twig growing out of a stump, you finished. Ascended, seated, working, interceding, returning. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. to see you. I think see those scars. Hug your neck and say thank you. If you have made a decision that you've not let us know about, there are two ways you can still. Connection card on your bulletin. Turn it in as you leave. We'll be in touch. It says, I pray to receive Christ as my Savior. Or other prayer requests. Whatever it is, we want to know. Secondly, uh, Al Michael will be here up front. Uh, Christina will be here Up front, James will be up front. I'm going to be around. There's a room next door or or right here. If you need prayer, don't leave here needing what, by God's grace, we can help you with. So glad you're here today. You honor us amazingly by your presence. I mean that. Every one of you, we're honored to have you. James.